Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Episode 6. We're getting uh, up there almost where I forget what number it is. That's a good thing. Hey, if you enjoyed this, let people know you're listening. Let them know where to find it. It's available everywhere. We're one of the cool kids now, so check us out on YouTube or any of the other Apple podcasts, Buzzsprout. We're where we want to be. We just want more of you to listen, and hopefully you'll be entertained and continue to listen. So I'd appreciate it if you subscribe, pass the word, anything you want me to talk about. Shoot me either a direct message or just tweet me, at Carl Falk, too. I'm on the Twitter. Again, the cool kids all hang out there, so I'm trying to be one of them, one of the cool kids. This week, another week of no sports. However, there were things that we got to watch. There's something coming up that we're all excited about. It's funny. The the draft as a sporting event is one of those things that some people are like, "Ah, I hate it. I hate the draft. It's boring. I I can't stand it. I've always been a fan of the draft. I've always enjoyed the draft. My brain enjoys the concept of what if, you know, what if we do this? What if we make this move? And that's what the draft is for us. You know, for people in those war rooms on draft night, which are going to look completely different, we'll get into that, the fact that they succeed or fail is their job. And if they don't succeed in the draft, they're going to fail at their job. And that's a big deal. This is how you get to the point where you play in meaningful football games, how you navigate the draft. And it may just be as simple as – trading, acquiring a bunch of picks and hitting on a few or trading picks away to bring in free agents. However you build your roster, the draft is the most important part of that process. So there's a lot of things to look at. And I, like many others, did a mock draft. And, you know, it's it's fun, to again, for me to do this as an exercise of what I think could happen. And then on draft night, watch what happens and go, oh, I had no idea that that was going to happen. And I think as fans, it's important to remember that. We're listening to guys like Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, Jeremiah, whoever you're watching for their mock drafts, we're getting their opinions. And those are educated opinions. They look at film. They break down tape. They have ideas of team building. However, they're not going out on all the personal interviews. So while they may look at a prospect and say, this guy can really play. Talking to that guy, you find out we can't have this guy in our building if we want to be successful. The culture factor. And, you know, Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, that's been their big thing in Buffalo. We got to change the culture. We got to bring in our guys that are culture guys, and then we can win football games. And while many people, me included, thought that was something of a joke early on, I see now that it's not. And culture is important. Who you bring into the building is almost as important as what that person brings with them when they come into the building. The draft will start out. and, and This year is going to be much different because of the coronavirus and people doing things like I'm doing this instead of being in our studio where we've got a nice backdrop and the sound quality is perfect. I'm in my dining room. I'm sitting here talking to you through an iPad. It's not as good. However, the message still gets across and that's this year's draft. Roger Goodell will be in his basement of his house. Now I don't know what Roger Goodell's basement looks like. We're all going to find out in a couple days. Dude makes like $45 million a year. Yeah. If you didn't know that Roger Goodell makes like $45 million a year. Again, I don't know what his house looks like, but if you sentence me to life in his basement, I'd sign up for it right now. Sight unseen. Yeah. All right. I'll take it. Bring it on. It's like when Barry Bonds got 30 days house confinement. Sentence me to a life at Barry Bonds' house. Are you kidding me? What more could you ask for? You got Grubhub and the internet. You're good, right? Well, this year it's going to be interesting because all the teams are going to be in their houses, not in one room. So the time leading up to the draft, the conversations aren't face-to-face. They're on the phones and, you know, This guy might be talking to team A and this guy might be talking to team B and there might be a trade going while the two people or three people who are making a conversation are on another call. And then at some point you've got to get to the NFL. Yesterday, 
the league ran through, did a dry run, a mock draft, if you will, where they had everyone sign on and everyone was going to go through it. The Bengals, who picked first, ended up having a glitch. There was with band bandwidth problems. Tech guy, right? Yeah, know a lot about it. bandwidth problems. One GM didn't have his mute on, and if you've been on a Zoom meeting, you understand that. It, there were other people who their kids are online, so they had to hey turn off the internet. You know, it, it's crazy that when it gets to this point. These important decisions, and guess what? They're affected just like we are. I'm still blown away that every person affiliated didn't go out and get about five landlines for this month. Landlines are still a thing, I, I guess. I don't have one, but I've heard rumors they are. And made sure that the landlines are in place in case the internet goes down. It's going to be an interesting night of viewing. But as far as the draft itself, it, it, the top five, are going to be fun to watch. Joe Burrow is going to go number one, whether it's to the Bengals or somebody gives them a boatload to go up and get him. But if you're the Bengals, you have to take Joe Burrow. You really do. You, you've you got an offensive line that's young and hopefully improving, although there's some questions on some of the guys they've drafted in the last couple of years, injuries and lack of development. Those things have hurt some of the guys, but they've got wide receivers. They've got Joe Mixon in a really good defensive line. They don't have a quarterback and they don't have an identity. Joe Burrow will give them that. They've got to stay there, in my opinion, and take this guy at this time. The Redskins go too. the best player in this draft is Chase Young. He's a game changing defensive end. Think of Nick Bosa, what he did last year for the 49ers. Now he joined a very good defensive line and finish the job there, if you will. Well, guess what? The Redskins already have a pretty good defense in place. Now, it's not a defense that's upper echelon, but if you have a decent defense and you add an elite piece, that guy that every time the quarterback comes to the line, points him out. There he is. Know where he is. Spend extra help making sure he doesn't ruin your game. That guy could take a decent group and make them an elite group. And I think that's what Chase Young can do. And then the fun begins to me at number three. The Lions, they need help all over, especially defensively. They need help in the secondary. They need help on the defensive line. Linebackers always in position of need in Detroit. Offensively, they can always use more. Matthew Stafford isn't getting any younger. But the smart money to me is that the Lions trade out of there to a tug of Viola is the guy that people will come up to get. Will somebody pay that price? Will the Dolphins pay that price? The Dolphins are the team in this draft to control. They've got three firsts. They've got two seconds. They've got a lot of draft capital where they can move either way, up, down, and continue to build the team. Remember, at the end of last year, Dolphins were a tough out. Brian Flores did a really good job there. They've had a good offseason, brought in some good players on defense, continue the build. But do you do it with Tua? Is that the guy? Now, to me, what makes sense there is the other L.A. team, the Chargers, uh, another team who's defensively pretty good. But they've lost their quarterback, Phillip Rivers. Tyrod Taylor, is, if you're a Bills fan, you know what Tyrod is. Tyrod's the vanilla quarterback. You can win games with him. You're not going to win games because of him. The Chargers last year had trouble having a home field advantage in the soccer stadium. They are the JV team in a huge market in L.A. Theoretically, the Rams and the Chargers are going to move into this new palace being built by Rams owner Stan Kroenke. When that happens, the Chargers are actually going to have even less of an identity in L.A. than they did playing in the soccer stadium. How do you change that? Well, you get a game-changing person, player, and bring them into your organization, and that is how you change things. And then you win. You have to win. Because if that guy just comes in and people buy tickets to see him play and you'll still lose, they won't re-up. And that's an important factor. So I think the Chargers are the team to watch. I don't think the Dolphins are necessarily the team to watch for Tua. I think the Dolphins have so much draft capital 
and there's so many questions about Tua with his health that you're better off if you're the Dolphins standing pat, seeing what happens in front of you, and maybe even try trading down a little bit, get more draft capital, and then get a guy like Justin Herbert. It'll be fun to watch at number three. Detroit can go anywhere. Then there's the Giants. The Giants, another team. They need offensive line badly. Saquon and Daniel Jones look like they're building blocks offensively. But defensively, they need help everywhere. They need help at the back end. I think they need help at the defensive line and certainly the linebacker position. They're one of the worst in the league. So the the top five are going to be a lot of fun to watch. Later on, there's a lot going on in the draft, and there's teams like the Bills who don't have a first-round pick. There are teams that have multiple first-round picks. The multiple first-round picks this year, Dolphins obviously with their three. 49ers, think about that. 49ers played in the Super Bowl. They have two first-round picks, and there's a lot of discussion that the 49ers may be looking to trade back, and if they do that, they'll accumulate more draft capital. They don't have big needs but they certainly can go a long way to reshaping their team. It's already a very good team. Defensively, they're great. Offensive line's very good. Joe Staley is coming back, but he's somebody they may look to replace. So maybe now is when you draft a tackle. A lot of tackles available in this draft. Maybe the Niners do that. The Raiders have two first-round picks. The Raiders are a team to watch on draft night as well. They're a team that I think could move up if they want to get a certain player. They've targeted that one guy. Remember last year, first year with Mike Mayock at the helm for the Raiders. A little bit unconventional. Uh, unconventional. Maybe took players that other teams didn't value as highly as they did. So I think the Raiders are a team that we have to pay attention to. The Jags. <laughs> I'm going to get to the Jags in a second because – a lot going on down at Jacksonville. Not only the beach being packed 20 minutes after the governor reopened them, but the Jags are just a mess. But they have two first-round picks and likely a team that may move a little bit draft night as well. The Vikings, of course, they have the Bills' first-round pick, so they have a couple as well. So there are teams to keep an eye on, and there's also a bunch of teams with multiple second-round picks. One team I want to hit on, is the Cleveland Browns, who sit at number 10. Browns have a need on that offensive line at tackle, at guard, at center. They have needs on the offensive line. They've done a nice job, gone and get, gone and got themselves a right tackle in Jack Conklin from Tennessee. I think that's a good move. The conventional wisdom is that they draft a left tackle at number 10. But if I'm running the Browns, and the way they go through GMs next year at this time, I very well may. I mean, they're going to hire somebody else. Might be me. Probably not. Most likely. Eh, it won't be me. But whatever. You get my point. The Browns have a team that's very talented but needs offensive line help. And not just one guy. One guy helps. Absolutely. But why not trade down? The Falcons are a team that many people look at as wanting to move up. They need defense. They continue to need defense year after year with the Falcons. It's about their lack of defense. The Falcons are at 15. I'm the Browns. I do this. I trade back from 10 to 15. I get the Falcons second round pick to do that. Now the Browns have additional draft capital in the second round at 15. They're still going to be able to get a very good player and potentially trade down again to replace the second-round pick that I'm going to trade to Washington for Trent Williams. So now I've added Trent Williams and Jack Conklin as my tackles. All of a sudden, that line looks much better. And if you draft with one of the other pieces of draft capital that you have, an interior offensive lineman who's going to be an upgrade over Wyatt Teller. Bills fans, remember that? Yeah, Wyatt Teller is currently starting at guard for the Cleveland Browns. Think they need an upgrade? I certainly do. So if you're a Browns fan... Think about that, and hopefully they'll listen to my advice because that's a no-brainer in my opinion. They have the most cap space going into the draft of all the teams in the NFL. So getting a new deal done with Trent Williams won't be difficult. Bringing a veteran presence and a great left tackle, and he is at that, a great left tackle, into your organization, all of a sudden Baker Mayfield just got better. Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt just got better. You've made everybody on the team better because of your additions. 
So keep an eye on that. Lots to look forward to. The Bills, their first-round pick isn't going to be taking place on Thursday night because their first-round pick is going to be Stephon Diggs, their wide receiver. Diggs is a very good player. I don't know how good he'll be and what numbers he'll put up in the Bills' system because I don't think this system is ever going to be a system where Josh Allen throws for 300 yards consistently. So if you're a wide receiver, your numbers are not going to reflect some of the success of other teams will have. But having digs on the outside makes John Brown better, makes Cole Beasley better, makes Devin Singletary better, and certainly gives Josh Allen a better chance at success. And there's nothing more important offensively for the Bills this year and next than that last part, Josh Allen moving forward and becoming the guy that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott traded them to. But if you're a Bills fan, don't lose heart. Listen to Deion Sanders talk about the Bills' offseason. After you look at some of these moves that have been made in free agency, which team do you think helped themselves the most? When you just throw it out there like that, the first thing that comes to my mind is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but I'm going to dig a little deeper. I like the Buffalo Bills. Man, do I like the Buffalo Bills. Defensively, they're in the top three or four amongst the league. Then you go out there and add a Stephon Diggs. Then you throw in a Josh, Josh Norman to coincide with Tredavious White, which is arguably one of the best cornerbacks in the game, coming to a defense to assure their stability. Oh, if they could just go in the draft and find a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Oh, I like it. And that kid that's quarterback, Josh Allen, whoo, he has a grown man outside to throw to that can win one-on-one. And I love what they're planting, especially since the New England Patriots don't have a Tom Brady. Look for this team to just ball out this season. debate whether or not Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have nailed the draft in their first couple of years. I mean, you still don't know about Josh Allen. Tremaine Edmonds looks better and looks like he's trending to where they thought he'd be when they drafted him. Tredavious White certainly has become a star at cornerback. This past season, that Oliver showed signs. So there are good things, and there are things that you look at and go, I'm not really sure Zay Jones is already gone as a second-round pick that they traded up to get. Deion Dawkins, I think, will be there for a long time. I think they'll re-up him and keep him at left tackle. There are a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Cody Ford showed signs, although I still think he's better served as being a guard than a right tackle. There are signs that they've done well. But what they've done better, in my opinion, than most of the teams in the league, they have changed their team through free agency and not the big ticket items. Year one, bringing in Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. It was great additions there. I didn't like the Trent Murphy signing, but he's become a solid player on that defensive line. They've gone out and added pieces on the offensive line. Mitch Morse was a big ticket item, if you will, but Feliciano and Spain were not. Ty Secchi was not. Yet these guys have become pretty important players going forward. The Bills this year adding depth, creating competition. Mario Addison, what he'll bring. Yeah, Josh Norman to that cornerback room. All of a sudden, Levi Wallace is being pushed. Taron Johnson's being pushed. Young guys who maybe think they've made it, all of a sudden, they've got to step up and go forward. The depth that they brought in, the talent they brought in, the trade to bring Diggs in, as I mentioned, it changes things. So while the Bills are the team with the least amount of draft capital going into the draft on Thursday night, this, to me, isn't a concern because of the offseason that they had. And you heard Deion Sanders say he loved the offseason. There's a lot of discussion about the running back position. Devin Singletary showed great signs, in my opinion, last year and is a guy that, in my opinion, 200 carries this year, minimum. That's We write that on the board day one of training camp. We got to get Devin Singletary the ball 200 times in the, on the ground and maybe throw another 50 passes to him. Get him touches because good things happen when you give him the ball. Yet 
he's not a back that in short yardage you want to run the offense through. Josh Allen has become their short yardage back. Remember, in two years, he's got 17 rushing touchdowns. Same amount as Saquon Barkley, the guy who last week I compared to Barry Sanders. So the Bills have that short yardage game. It's just with their quarterback. But as time goes on, I think you change that. And I think this year, the Bills, one of their unfinished pieces of business is the backup running back position. An interesting name came up this week as being available and trained. The Jacksonville Jaguars are disaster. Now, we could have said this for a long time. Dave Caldwell, their general manager, has been there since 2013. Dave Caldwell's teams are 36 and 76, 40 games under 500 since he has been the draft. His first draft, 2013, he took Luke Jokel as their number one pick. He was the second pick overall. He's out of football. This is seven years ago. There's only one player from that draft that he drafted still in the league. The next year, his number one pick was Blake Bortles. The second pick was Marquis Lee. Lee got released yesterday. He was the highest, one of the highest paid players on the Bengals or on the Jaguars. Dante Fowler is gone. TJ Yeldon's in Buffalo. They were the top two picks in 2015. Jalen Ramsey is gone. He was the number one pick in 2016. Leonard Fournette in 2017 was the fourth overall pick. A few quarterbacks went after him. Some guy Watson, some guy Mahomes. They look okay. But, you know, you had Blake Bortles at that time, so you, you don't go for a quarterback. The Jags have basically announced to the league that Leonard Fournette can be had for a new virus mask and a bag of footballs. A third day pick, fifth, fourth rounder, maybe available. And many Bills fans immediately jumped on it. Hey, Leonard Fournette, Devin Singletary, big back, quick back. Last year, Fournette had his best year ever, had over a thousand yards, caught a whole bunch of passes. He was sixth in the league in all purpose. Let's talk about this. He's only getting $4 million a year this year, and next year, its fifth-year option is about eight. And then I heard this. Yeah, a report came out over the weekend about the Jaguars possibly moving Fournette, and as Ian Rappaport reported this morning, that's been going on for a while. That was happening around free agency, so it's starting to look like Leonard Fournette's time with the Jaguars is coming to a close in one form uh, or another here, and and look, the reason for that is, is several fold at this point. Um, Tom Coughlin seemed to be the driving force for drafting Fournette and having that run first offense, but frankly, The production just hasn't been there, and there's been issues with Fournette behind the scenes as well. I'm told via sources that he's been perennially late, uh, and over the last couple of years, uh, just hasn't put in the kind of work you need to succeed at this level. He's been sleeping through meetings. They've had to wake him up a few times in the middle of team meetings or offensive meetings, uh, and also just his mood. He tended to be a moody player from time to time, despite the fact that he was third in the league in touches. And by the way, the last time we saw the Jaguars was on the field in Week 17, putting up a season-high 38 points on the Colts. Fournette didn't play in that game. So that's why the Jaguars are looking to move on from the former number four overall pick. Mike Garofolo of the NFL Network letting me know that Leonard Fournette is not a culture guy. He's not a guy who's going to go along with the process. Can he help the Bills? Absolutely. Could he be somebody that you look at and say, hey, I'm giving up a fifth-round pick for this guy, and I bring him in and he's sleeping through meetings, I could cut him, and I've lost a fifth-round pick. Risk-reward. Do you give him a change of scenery and see if maybe he gets with the program. The problem to me in this scenario is you look at the Bills, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Who is their offensive leader? Who is the veteran presence that has the wherewithal and the cachet to grab a kid by the face mask and get in his face and let him know you better get with the program? They really don't have that. Sean McDermott, Brandon B. talk about having a veteran in each room. Who's the veteran in the running back room? T.J. Yeldon, who got jettisoned from Jacksonville because of Leonard Fournette. 
I don't think it works in Buffalo. I don't know that it'll work anywhere. Look, this kid can play, and someone, New England maybe, gets a running back that all of a sudden you look at and go, how did they give him up for a fifth-round pick? If you put Leonard Fournette in the right situation, Leonard Fournette decides he wants to be the guy that he can be, go out and play. Now, last year, he got himself in tremendous shape going into the season, had injuries the first two years. Going into last year, he lost weight. He was in shape, showed signs of maturity. But the fact that here we are a couple days before the draft, he's available for a third-day pick. And I'm not talking about a third-round pick. We're talking fourth or fifth rounder. It shows that the word is out that Leonard Fournette is not somebody who your organization is going to be comfortable bringing in. I think that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have taken some more chances on guys this past offseason. Stephon Diggs isn't known as a character guy, extremely hard worker, but like many other wide receivers, he's volatile. He's somewhat of a diva. And I think that's going to be something that they have to weigh when you talk about bringing in a guy like Leonard Fournette. So draft Thursday night, it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to see what happens. Again, I'm a geek. I'm a, I'm a draft guy. I love it. It's fun. If you don't, well, that's okay. Watch the other sports that are on this week. Exactly. So shifting gears, one of the topics that I continue to hit on on this podcast is what's going on in Buffalo with the owners of the Bills and the Sabres, Terry and Kim Pagula. The Pagulas run an organization called PSE, Pagula Sports and Entertainment, and they have reformed Buffalo down near the arena where the Sabres play, and it has done great things for the city of Buffalo. When Terry Pagula bought the Sabres in 2010, not many people knew who he was. He was a guy who, he, he, he does what? Oil and gas? Multi-billionaire? And his quote at the time was, we're here to win championships. If I need to make more money, I'll go drill another well. Sounds good to me. Bring it on. And he dumped money into the organization, brought people in, sent people out. A lot of things have gone on. One thing that hasn't gone on with the Sabres is any level of success. Early years were involving a tank to try to get Connor McDavid. While McDavid obviously didn't end up in Buffalo, Jack Eichel did. Maybe the best consolation prize ever. But Terry Pagula basically signed off on a tank that allowed this to happen. Culture is something we just talked about, and we talked about it a lot with the Bills. Culture within PSE was brought to the forefront this week in a series of articles by Tim Graham of The Athletic. Now, Tim Graham is one of the best in the business, and especially locally when it comes to finding out scoop. He talked to many people from within PSE. They went through another round of layoffs last week. Now, they, like many other companies, have to deal with the coronavirus impact economically on their businesses. And think of their businesses. Their businesses, oil and gas. Well, natural gas is cheaper than it's ever been. And gas and oil, <laughs> right now, it's at negative value, a barrel of oil. I'm looking to build a tank in the backyard or dig a tank in the backyard so I can you know, buy some of this or they could pay me to take some of it so I could continue to fill my car up for the next couple of years. They're not making a ton of money or any money through gas and oil at this point. As a matter of fact, they capped some of their wells in July because they saw the economic downturn of gas and oil, supply and demand. We have all this supply. There is no demand. Money goes down. Their other businesses are basically entertainment businesses, whether it be the restaurants or the hotel that they built or the Harbor Center where they host hockey tournaments. Think how that business or that type of business has been affected by the coronaviruses. They're all shut down, and they laid off a whole bunch of people initially from those businesses. Well, last week they laid off some people within their organization and it's generally on the Sabre side. The Sabres have been projected that they've lost between 40 and $60 million each of the last few years. They fired a guy, John Sinclair, who had been with the Sabres organization 
since 1988. He was the vice president of ticketing. They sent him packing and gave him two weeks health insurance. Two weeks, 32 years. Thanks. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. The Pagulas have a knack of doing things poorly. But when you read these articles, and they're well-written, and you read the things that people from inside PSE are saying about how the culture of PSE has just been a disaster since Kim Pagula has taken over, and you read some of the comments and some of the things, the Pagulas sent out a thing, Pagula Family Goals. To This was a video presentation. They lived down in Florida. Because of tax purposes, they save much money living down there as opposed to living in New York State and paying New York State taxes. So they live down there. So Kim Pagula, the acting president of PSE, the Sabres and the Bills, she lives down there and does a lot of video conferencing like we're getting. Pagula family goals. The first three family goals, the first three objectives, win championships, to have st- sustainability, and return on investment. The biggest goal for Kim Pagula was to maintain their st- their lifestyle. Maintain it. Look, their lifestyle is something we can't fathom. I know hardships have hit everybody, and I've just detailed how hard the Pagulas have been hit. So hard, in fact, that they had to stop production on the super yacht that they were having built. I know. Tough times. We've all had them, so... You know, we can relate. Kim Pagula has the ability, in my opinion, to be a very strong voice. For years, it was rumored that she was the loudest voice behind the scenes. We've seldom heard from her. And that bothered me because here's a woman in sports who can be that strong woman voice and something that I think sports needs more of. And she seemed reluctant to do that. And I always wondered why, because to hear her speak, she's very well-spoken. She's very intelligent. There are a lot of good qualities about her. But now, because she's ascended to those roles, because she's fired everybody else, you listen to what she says and how she says it, and maybe now we understand why she didn't. After the article came out in The Athletic, she agreed to do a Q&A with Tim Graham, the author of those articles. Her answers were very interesting if you look at the psychology of her answers. One word, and I'll say letter, was used so often it really bothered me. I. I had tough decisions to make. I had to look at the sustainability. I had to do. I I, I, we, what happened to our organization? One Buffalo, what happened to, we have to work as an organization. There's no, we, it was all eyes. And if I'm somebody who reads through things, it's just how my brain works. I, I just see her as a me guy. <laughs> and I know I'm saying it weird, but she is somebody who, Acts as if she doesn't have to answer to anybody, which she doesn't. She doesn't have to listen to anybody, which she doesn't. Basically, she's acting like a typical billionaire. So many of our billionaires get to a point where everyone around them is somebody on their payroll or benefiting from their success. So we get into the emperor has no clothes mentality. You're not going to tell the person who's feeding you that they're doing something wrong. Go back to Deion Sanders, who we heard from earlier in the podcast. One of the greatest things he ever said is all young athletes need one thing. They need to hire a no person. Everyone's like, yes, man, that, you know, you're my boy. You're the one picking up the tab every night. I'm never going to tell you you're doing something wrong. Hire somebody to be honest with you. Most billionaires don't have that person around them. And in the Sabres organization, they've all been fired. Now, to this point, the Bills organization has been unaffected by this. These recent layoffs all came on the Sabre side, and it's been reported, and I haven't seen it confirmed, that even general manager Jason Bottrell had taken a pay cut. So when you look at that, the Sabres, it's, it, it's very concerning. They, again, lost all that money 
they had six games canceled. The Bills haven't had any games canceled. The Sabres need to figure out a way to get better. Let's look at the big picture of things, shall we? The trickle-down effect of this is with the Sabres and with KeyBank Arena, an arena that's now almost 25, 26 years old, they need an infusion of capital to fix that arena, improve it. It's 25 years old. It's been beaten up a little bit. It needs to get better. Then again, looking in the future, what events are going to be held there? What concerts are going to be held there in the next six months? Or what sporting events are going to be held there in eight months? Are the Sabres going to be back at at, at October like they normally are? We don't know these things. Yet, it needs an infusion of cash. Here in Rochester, they also run Blue Cross Arena. They also own the Amherst and the Nighthawks. Those are so far down the to-do list. I don't see any improvements coming the way of the Rochester Blue Cross Arena. The city of Rochester entered into a deal with the Bagulas to run the arena that they thought they would get an infusion of of money in the downtown area, similar to what Buffalo got with Harbor Center and the hotels. Well, to this point, three years in, nothing's happened in Rochester. Nothing's going to happen. Now let's look at another side of the Pagula's economic woes, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, and how it may affect other things, like the bills. The bills were purchased by Terry and Kim Pagula for $1.4 billion in 2014. I did some math, economics class time. If you were to finance that purchase at 5% over 10 years, the average annual payment would be about $168 million a year to pay off that note in 10 years at 5%, $168 million. In 2018, because the Green Bay Packers are a publicly traded company, they have to release their balance sheet. The Packers reported in 2018 that their money from the television contract in the NFL was $255 million. So if the Pagulas paying that $155 million note off each year, they would profit $87 million if simply they ran a break-even organization based on ticket sales, parking, concessions, apparel, all the things that go along with advertising within the stadium. If all of that paid for all their expenses, they would profit almost $90 million. So that's a good thing because the Sabres are losing 40 to $60 million. So Terry and Kimpagula are still netting somewhere close to $50 million, you would think. But here's the thing. If you continue to sustain losses in one business, it's eventually going to affect another business. The NFL is very careful about their ownership groups. They're very in tune to their ownership groups. So much so that when one business struggles of an owner, they start looking into it. The Pagulas have told the NFL and their partners in the NFL that their side businesses do not affect the bills. They've come out and said it already. So before the NFL could ask the question, they've said it. To me, again, psychology, that's somewhat concerning. Here's another thing. If you think about the Raiders a couple years ago, Mark Davis was the poorest owner in the NFL prior to this move to Las Vegas, which – Sign me up to be the poorest owner in the NFL any day. It's like being the worst billionaire ever. Nah. Uh, again, sign me up. But when it comes time to make some financial decisions, it affected the team. Khalil Mack was in part traded because the cash needed to give him a signing bonus of a new contract wasn't available because Mark Davis simply didn't have it. So now bringing this back to the Bagulas. If things continue to go the way they're going and their liquidity comes into question, Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean are both in the fourth year of their deal. When you think about contracts, and we've never found out what Sean McDermott's being paid or Brandon Bean's being paid, but Rex Ryan got a five-year, $25 million deal. We know that. As a matter of fact, this is the last year of Rex Ryan's deal i believe or last year was so now they just got five million dollars richer but the job that mcbean have done is worthy of extensions 
and being paid. And no longer will they be a hometown discount. If, if Sean McDermott didn't get the $5 million that Rex Ryan got because he was an unknown quantity at that point, he'll certainly surpass that now. He's built a great reputation for himself within the league. And if the Bills aren't willing to pay him and he's going to coach out his contract, there'll be a lot of teams lining up to hire Sean McDermott. The Bills have a good thing going, as we just talked about. The Bagulas have to pay these two men. They have to continue to fund the Bills. In spite of their other projects and their other businesses being problematic, this is something that cannot happen. They've got to take care of things. And we'll see going forward how the Bills spend money. Do the Bills have some cuts coming? As, as of now, they've said that business is usual for the Bills. They will be unaffected by these decisions. Let's see if they're affected in a way that's not negatively, but it's certainly not positively. And that's the Brandon Bean, Sean McDermott extension talk for sure. Keep an eye on the Pagulas. I think things are about to get even more interesting. A great job by Tim Graham of The Athletic. I encourage you to read this stuff. And, you know, one thing I hear a lot when I talk about the Pagulas, I hear criticism because I'm going after the Pagulas. I'm not going after them. I'm giving an opinion. And my opinion is based on facts that I read. And I'm sure Terry and Kim Pagula are nice people. I don't know them at all. I've had this much interaction with them. But it's amazing to me that the fans of the teams go after Tim Graham for reporting what he reported. He got facts, put them on paper, and he's made out to be a bad guy because the Bagulas are so revered. Well, I've said this for many, many years. Until a significant amount of money is spent either fixing up New Era Field or building a new stadium, the Bills are still a team that could be bought and moved. And if the Bagulas end up going south with their other businesses, they've got one huge asset that will always maintain their way of life. And that's the bills. Now I don't see it happening and I hope it never happens, but keep an eye on that because this is something that could go a long way to affecting our sports fandom here in Western New York after the coronavirus, after we get back to the new normal that we'll have Sunday night, we were, Blessed to have something to watch on TV. The documentary, The Last Dance, started. The 10-part series about the Chicago Bulls, 97-98. It was excellent. Listen to some sound from it. As hundreds of thousands of fans cheered the Bulls, the drama of what will happen to this great dynasty was apparent to all. This will be Phil's last year as the coach of the Bulls. At the conclusion of the year, uh, we'll look towards the future. After the fifth championship, we realized, other than Michael, the rest of the guys were probably at the end of their high productive years. And we realized maybe this was the time to do a rebuild and not try to win a sixth championship. Ever since a respect for the people who have laid the groundwork, so that you could be a profitable organization. Can the Bulls keep this team together? Is there any doubt that Michael will come back? I just kept hearing this over and over again, and I was just getting irritated. Like, we were winning. Michael Jordan's the only player that could ever turn it on and off, and he never freaking turned it off. It just didn't seem real. There was none other like him. His balance, his footwork. Mm, mm, mm. We felt like. We were the greatest team ever. You have to wonder why Michael Jordan, who is surely the most popular player in our time, would be, in effect, driven out of professional basketball. We're entitled to defend what we have until we lose it. The only question, how long can it last? The 
Last Dance was the highest rated show that ESPN has had. Their highest rated documentary ever on ESPN. And it's no surprise with what we've got going on and the subject matter. Look, a few things. Michael Jordan, I remember watching him before he hit the shot against Georgetown in the championship game. He was somebody that I knew of because we're of similar age. And I remember watching him in December at a game against Maryland where he did the rock the cradle dunk at the end of the game. And I was like, what the hell was that? Never seen anything like that. Who is this guy? And then you know how it is when you see somebody do something, you start paying attention. That was me with Michael Jordan. So by the time he hit the shot, I knew all about him and was blown away by the potential of this guy. Now, did I think he was going to be what we know he became? No, neither did anyone else. And that was pointed out in the documentary. But what was great to me was showing the early Michael Jordan and hearing about him at Carolina. Year two, Michael Jordan broke his foot and missed like 60 games. And they brought him back at the end, put him on a minutes restriction. They were basically tanky. And there, there were a lot of things. And I remember this well, again, because I followed Jordan at the time and was a huge fan of the guys. I remember hearing that he was down in Carolina playing ball. And that's why the Bulls brought him back. And they essentially alluded to that, that he was down there playing pickup. And they actually put into his contracts a love of, love of the game clause where he wasn't allowed to play pickup basketball anymore after that, when they re-upped him. So Jordan was a guy who just a competitive freak. There were some things that came out, and you saw the clip. Pat Riley. I don't know how old dude is, but is anybody smoother than that guy? I mean, you go back to the 80s Lakers with the slick back look, the GQ suits. He was unbelievably smooth. Now, we're talking 30-plus years later, dude – is even he looks like you know he's somebody that everyone's going to come up and kiss the ring still looks smooth isaiah thomas is still going to get proof walking into a bar he hasn't played since the 90s he's got to be 60 yet zeke looks unbelievably young it's crazy how that is the different things that we saw too michael jordan against larry bird in that celtics bulls playoff series when Jordan had 63 watching that reliving that. And again, I, I remember Sunday afternoon watching that game and just, Oh my God. If that, I know after the game was over, I went out to the driveway and was trying to do some of the things that Jordan did. And certainly couldn't do it, but I tried. That was what you did. And watching Jordan score 63, and it dawned on me when I was watching the highlights, he didn't make a three-point shot. Michael Jordan won 10 scoring titles. Until the end, he wasn't a three-point shooter at all. He was the king of the mid-range game. New wave basketball, the, the different ways we look at sports now, sabermetrics in baseball and different analytics in football and basketball. You don't shoot mid-range shots. Yeah. I'm watching the greatest player in the history of the game score 63 in a playoff game and a mid-range game. Going against a team that had four Hall of Famers. You don't get rid of the mid-range game. You continue to do that. And I think that's something that basketball needs to get back to. But this has been a great ride. We've, we're learning things. Michael Jordan is not a good dude. In the documentary, he talked about Scottie Pippen's contract. And Pippen had surgery, delayed surgery, because he was unhappy with his deal, missed time. Jordan, now, modern Jordan, said he was wrong. Phil Jackson said he was right. Said he handled it the way he should have. Players got to get their money. The Bulls organization, Jerry Krause is the villain. And for every hero, there's got to be a villain. And Jerry Krause was certainly that. Nicknamed Crumbs because the short, fat guy would always get crumbs all over him when he eat. Crumbs Krause was the GM who broke up the Bulls through arrogance. The quote that we'll always hear, organizations win championships, not players. 
Yeah. How many organizational championships have the Bulls won since they forced Jordan and Phil Jackson out? Zero. Yeah. Okay. That's all right. We got that. So it's interesting to watch this thing and to go through all this old footage, see some of the old names. And again, Jerry Krause traded up to get Scottie Pippen. He was sitting at eight and 10 in that draft. He went up to five to get Scottie Pippen, a guy that most people didn't know much about because he was a small school guy. They brought in Dennis Rodman. Most people thought that would never work because of Rodman's volatile personality. They went and drafted Horace Grant. So they made moves that worked for the team. They traded Charles Oakley, who was a very good player for Bill Cartwright because they needed a big. They made moves that made their team better. And this was Jerry Krause, and he continued to do that. So while we watch and we remember he's the villain, let's not forget some of the good things that he did as well. A lot of great entertainment out of it. A lot of great footage. Michael played the game differently. The thing that got me was yesterday, the day after, how many people started talking LeBron and Michael after this. And to me, this is one of those dumbest arguments of all time. To me, it's Michael. He's the greatest player I've ever seen. LeBron is certainly up there. If he's not second, he's top five. And I don't mean that as a slight to LeBron, but there's just so many great players who have played the game through the years. But one doesn't have anything to do with the other. If you like one, doesn't mean you have to hate the other or discredit the other. And that's what I always find. Guys on TV who are huge Jordan guys will continually find ways to poke holes at LeBron. People who are LeBron guys poke holes at Jordan, saying how he played when the NBA was at its weakest, which he did. The league had expanded greatly. It was before the European invasion. Very few European players had come over at that point. The league was much weaker when Jordan won his six titles than it is now. Doesn't mean he wasn't still great. And then again, put Jordan today, be the best player in the league by far. It wouldn't even be close. But that's the hypothetical argument. Because you like one, you don't have to discredit the other. They can both be great. I'm looking forward to next week when we get to watch the Phil Jackson part because he's somebody I find fascinating. And the Dennis Rodman part which I'm sure there's going to be a few bombshells there. I just hope that Mike's got his cocktail next to him as he did the other night and continues to hit the cocktail and maybe gets a little looser with the lips. He's always been guarded with what he said. Mike's a dick. We're going to find that out. He's always been a dick. And we're going to see things and we're going to hear things that are going to poke holes in some theories. But let's just hope that the booze that he's sipping on while he's telling these stories, maybe loosen some things up. Enjoy the draft on Thursday night. I can't wait. We'll talk next week. Thanks for listening. Pass the word. Have a great week, everybody. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.